If you turn tonight in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, we are in the meat of the book of Romans, and now we come to this incredible picture that the Apostle Paul paints uh, of these new lives that we now live in Christ. We understood uh, that he's completely told us we've been justified by faith. We're, we're now walking in grace. The Lord has graciously adopted us into his family. Uh, he's freed us from the bondage of sin and death. And now we get to this place to where what should we do with these new lives that we now live? What do they look like? And so tonight's message, how to really live, we'll pick up in verse 11 through verse 14. Would you pray with me as we ask God to speak through his word? Father, we again are just delighted to be able to be here tonight, and we pray that you would speak into our lives through the power of your word, through the majesty of it, Lord, that you authored these words by the Holy Spirit, caused the Apostle Paul to write them down, and they are still true tonight. Uh, we are grateful for the truth of your word. Impress it upon our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11 here in Romans 6, and likewise you also. Now it's important, again, when you see therefore or likewise, to look backwards. He's speaking of these things that we can know. And so the context is the, the first 10 verses that we just finished. And likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And so he's going to give us three key component parts to how to really live tonight. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have to, first thing we see is to have this knowledge of reckoning. The second thing we see, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And so he says the next thing is you're to present yourself, you're to take yourself from that reckoning and knowing uh, to, to present yourself to God as being alive and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. For here's the promise. One of the more beautiful promises here in Romans. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Amen? And notice what it says. For you are not under law. Please note, there is no the in front of law, and that's accurate in the original text. In other words, it's speaking about law in general, because the person who's under grace, notice what it says, you're no longer under law, but under grace. As the child of God, we live differently because of the grace of God. It's an incredible picture tonight. What's really going on here, and, and I would just point you to an example, and it's the example of Lazarus there in John 11. Um, what we are is very similar to what he was. He was that way in a physical way. We are that way in a spiritual way because he was formerly dead, amen? So dead that his family said, you know, you really don't want him to come out because he stinks, he was really dead. And he was really prepared for that burial 
where he was stuck in the ground and stayed there for three plus days, probably four total days. He was buried for four days. And on the fourth day, Jesus comes along. Remember, his family said, if you'd just gotten here earlier, maybe our brother would have lived. So there's no question in the family's mind, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus, by Jewish custom, would have been wrapped and bound in grave clothes. And he was inside that tomb. And you remember the story. And when he came out, he was still wrapped head to toe in the grave clothes. Amen? So what did Jesus say to him? Unbind him and let him go. That's the picture of you. That's the picture of me. That's the picture of every believer's condition when we come to faith in Christ. You see, we were once completely bound by death. Death had taken its toll on you through sin. And sin actually would ultimately cause that death. And if that death unabated by the cross of Christ, if it wasn't dealt with at Calvary's cross, then that death would even be so permanent as to last into eternity. But you have been made alive. And so in the very same way, you who were once dead in your trespasses and sins, inside of the grave, have been made alive in Christ. And so now you have walked out of that grave. Here's the problem. There's still a little residue on some of us. Amen? There's still kind of some of that funky, like the old 50s horror movies. You remember how always the zombies had stuff hanging off of their arms? You know, every single guy that was formerly dead that was now walking around in those movies, you know, kind of had a few strings of clothing hanging off of them. That's the same way we still are. Because though we are completely 100% redeemed, we have had our sin debt paid at Calvary's cross, there's still a little clingy old dead stuff that hangs around in the form of your old sin nature. Amen? It's still there, occasionally rears its ugly head. And so that is the picture in our passage tonight. We were wrapped up, as it were, in those grave clothes of of that old life. The difference, of course, is this. You you see, our, our believer's old sinful clothes don't come off immediately. And probably some of you can remember when you gave your life to the Lord. There were some things that happened almost instantaneously, amen? You knew in your heart that you were a believer. God began to work in your life. But I think it's safe to say that most of us didn't have every habit, every bit of language. How many of you experienced a change in the way that your words were actually used? You now spoke with English instead of epithets. But it wasn't complete. Every once in a while, some of those old words you used to use kind of crept out occasionally. You see, we still battle the old sin nature. It's still there. But this passage says that though we're battling it, we can have victory over it. We don't have to give in to it. We're no longer mastered by it. And so those ugly, old, nasty-smelling garments that are covered with that old nature have literally been taken off of us to the extent that we will allow them to be removed and, hear me well, don't put them back on. 
Don't go back in the closet. And I've shared this before, and it's a perfect analogy. You know, most of us had a life before we came to faith in Christ. Now, some of us, that was, you were very young when you gave your life to the Lord. Uh, Some of you in here tonight, it was maybe not that long ago. Maybe it was this week. Some of you maybe last year. And you spent good money on that little black dress. You, you spent good money on those, that, that suit that makes you look really attractive to the ladies. You'd be looking awesome when you're in that suit. And, and when you put that on, the first thing you think about is that club you used to go to. See, here's what needs to happen. You need to go in the closet, and in Jesus' name, don't give it to the thrift store. Take that puppy and get rid of it. And in much the same way, you need to deal with your sin nature. You need to say no to the old garments. They're still there. You can still put them on, but the choice is yours. And that is the real issue that's before us tonight. You see, you've died to sin. You've been raised in new life. And so now we have to deal what remains, what the real problem is. In chapter 7, when we get there, Paul's going to delete, actually talk extensively about the believer's battle with the old sinful habits, those old inclinations, those things that still pop up in your mind. Isn't it awesome as a child of God? You be, I don't know if you do this or not, but there are times when I actually, not only do I catch myself in what I think, but I actually have time to articulate a thought in my head. It's like, man, I know what I would have said previously, and it's not coming out right now. That's that victory. The nature's still there. The old sinful person is still visible in the background, but he's been completely dealt with by the grace of God. So he has no more power, no more authority. You see, sin in the life of the believer, because you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb, only has the power you give it. You hear what I just said? Sin in your life as a believer only has the power you give it. Because the power it has is not as great as the power that is within you. That's 1 John 4, right? Greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. So if that is true, which it is, then the power that sin has in your life is only given to it. It is not a believer's mandate to be any longer trapped in sin. You see those old habits, those things, they die hard, amen? You can say amen, they die hard. You go to those places, you drive through those things, you hear those words, you see those people. There's times when that old sin nature, that old man, that old woman is welling up. It's like standing right beside you going, come on, we want to play. You have to say, get thee behind me, Satan. And you've got to deal with it that way. You cannot be indecisive about your old nature because you have the power to win. You must exercise your will to be in line with God's will if you want to have the victory. Because if you just cave in, you're going to do exactly what the old man wants. And it won't be good. And so to that end, it's really you that's the problem. 
Amen? You see, it's not a power problem with God. It's not a sufficiency problem with the cross of Christ. It's not that the power of the Holy Spirit is not sufficient in you to conquer those things. The problem is you and your implementation. Now, people want to argue about this subject. Say, well, you know, I have a disease. If sin in that sense is incurable, then your Bible is a farce and we should all go home. Because there is no temptation what your Bible says, but that which is such is common to man, and in it there is a way of escape. So the Bible is clear about the power of sin over a believer, and that is it only has power if you give it power, because it's been defeated by the death of Christ on the cross. The question is, will you keep it powerless by aligning yourself with God's will? There are some questions that we wonder about. I wonder about them. Maybe you do. If we've been freed from sin, then why does sin still give us so much trouble? Anybody ever have that thought? It's okay. You can raise your hand. You can say amen. Yeah, I have. I think most believers, if they're honest, will say they've struggled with that question. How about this one? If you're now holy before God, which the Bible says you are, Amen. You're going to be presented faultless before the glorious throne of God one day. As far as God's concerned, he sees you in the righteousness of Christ fully holy. If that's the case, which it is, why are our lives so often unholy? It's pretty deep questions, aren't they? If we're righteous, which we are, we've been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, amen? It's called justification. The shortened version of it is Christ's righteousness for yours. He paid the full price, took the weight of your sin, and gave you his righteousness in its place. You are actually righteous before God. If that's true, which it is, then how can our lives better manifest that righteousness? Because I think we could all say we can improve. Amen? Good questions for tonight. Three principles to help us along the way. Here's some answers for us. And I want you to really dig into this a little bit. This is one of those passages, if you'll lay hold of the truth that's within it, it will help you deal with sin in your own life. And any believer that tells you that they are completely freed from a struggle with sin is not being honest. I I concern myself with people who say things like that. They're usually young people. They're very often people who've graduated from seminary or Bible college. Oh, I no longer struggle with sin. Well, you just did. It's called prideful arrogance. (laughs) No, we struggle with sin. Because remember, sin by definition is anything that's contrary to the nature of God. So your little bitternesses, your anger... Your vanity. This one's going to sting. Gluttony. You can't stay out of the bonbons. Oops, that's sin. You understand what I'm saying? Make sure you keep the word sin in its proper context. So now how many of us struggle with sin? Yeah, you got some things that you're still struggling with, amen? Amen. Maybe language. Maybe you're not kind. Did you know that unkindness is sinful? 
You get in the picture? That's those old grave clothes. They're kind of still hanging off of you in a couple of spots, aren't they? So what are you doing with them? What are you doing about them? Here's some things for you, for me, for us. It says, likewise, you also, there in verse 11. It's pointing back. It has to do with the mind. And so the implied intent here is, you need to know this. It's assumed knowledge. It actually goes back, if you will, to verse 9. It's continuing that thought. It says they're knowing that. These three little tiny words are referring back to the truths that he's already given us. In other words, you have to count this as absolute truth. You can't tinker around with it. You have to know who you are in Christ Jesus. You have to know that. And you cannot deviate from it. You see, the person that deviates from the truth in who they are in Christ, and here's who you are, you are spiritually dead to sin. Sin is no longer the you that you are today. Sin is the old you you used to be. And now you are, you must know this, alive to Christ. So in that sense, behold, all things are becoming new because you still got some grave clothes dangling. And so you're stripping those things off. You're saying, no, I don't want that little piece of junk hanging off of me. I want to make sure that I don't carry around that bitterness anymore. That hatred I had for that person, I want to let that go, and I want love to fill that spot that used to be occupied by hatred. You see, you must know who you are in Christ. You see, when you begin to lay hold of who you are in Christ, it changes what you know about everything else. Because you see life through the correct lens. You see, the idea is is you have to count this as absolute truth. It becomes an axiom. An axiom is a piece of information that is so important that it becomes a rule or a guide for life. We would say it's axiomatic. In other words, absolute truth, you must act on it. It absolutely is, so you got to do it. This is an axiom. You have to know who you are in Christ. It's a command that's reached that level of now you implement it in your life. You, you say, I not only believe this, but I'm going to act on it. You see, because there are a lot of people who believe things about the Bible. They believe things about God. They believe things about their relationship with God, but they don't do them. And that says, do you really believe? And if you really know that it's true, then you should be doing it. This is where truth and action are linked together. Doctrine and duty become one. You see, we have to know. How do we know God's truth? You see, spiritual exhortation, what I've just been doing is is exhorting you to a truth of God. But it's always built on scriptural knowledge. I'm not telling you something that I can't back up with the Bible. What I just told you comes from your Bible. It's not my ideas. It's what God has said about himself. So you have to know these things. You see, it's built on the belt. It's built, in essence, on the wealth of God's word. So when you think about these things, it's not, you know, some pastor telling you. It's God having spoken from time past 
into time present that is going to be absolutely accurate all the way into your future. You see, you mine the wealth of the Word. We're to be like God in that sense. And that doesn't mean you are God. That means that your behavior should be as much like Him as is possible. Can anybody stand improvement in your life in that area? Oh, man, I got things. I, I, you know what? I, I, Brandon and I went over to Burger King today. I didn't know they had a, a seven-layer Whopper. I had no idea. You know, this guy walks up to the counter, and they have one that says three. It's on the menu. But the guy walks up, yeah, I want a seven. I'm with a seven. And they start making this thing. It's like a foot and a half tall. I'm going, that looks good. That's got more calories than I need in a year. Besides that, when you, when you get my age, if it goes in here, it stays. It's like directly proportionate. Whatever I consume, it's like, oh, there's that cookie. You see, I, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, and all of a sudden, where I was going to get just like a single Whopper, I'm going, I can do two. If he can do seven, I can do two. And it's like, I'm like, oh, Lord, you know I don't need this. You see, it's, it's one of those little areas. We don't think about it. The old nature is right there. Oh, you don't get the jumbo size. Yeah, get the jumbo size if you want to be jumbo size. You see, the enemy's back there going, you need it, you need it, you need it. It's a, any of you ever get this? It's a better deal. That's Satan back there going, yeah, I know. You, you, you see, we have, to, we have to listen to the Lord. He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the original command from Leviticus 11. He says, look, I'm holy, you be holy. And he gives us the means whereby that happens. Peter repeats that same command. He says, he, he says like the Holy One who called you, you be yourselves also in your Check this out there, 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. In all your behavior, and he says, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. You see, when we know God's truth, God doesn't want me to blow a heart valve. He wants me to stick around a while, so I'm not supposed to have the 7,000 calorie lunches. So even in those types of things, I can stand some adjustment, can you? They're just little things, and I'm not putting the guilt trip on anybody. I'm just simply saying, that's the place where we need to go. We need to say, Lord, how will this affect the level of holiness that's in my life? Ow! I can stand some improvement, frequently and often. You see, God could have been, he, he would have been perfectly justified to simply give us a list of commands. You realize that? God could have told us, I want you to do this, 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 and this, and that's it. No deviation, you don't do it. You know, it's like, eh, fries you from heaven. He could have done that. He's, he's God. But he didn't. He gave us grace instead. 
But it doesn't change the fact that Scripture is replete with very specific commands about the standards for behavior and conduct of God's people. Do you know that? The good news is, is what we're getting to at the end of tonight, and that is you're no longer under law, but you're under grace, but the law is still there as his ideal. It's the structural integrity of behavior for the believer. So if you want to know what God wants you to do and be, if you want to have that old man plucked away, if you no longer want to, to give in to it, then you must actively seek to be pleasing to God. You must know him. And the more you know him, the more you can be like him. He, he, here's the truth, family. We have to understand this. We're not remodeled sinners. We have been made saints. Do you understand that? There's a difference. You're not just kind of a fixed up sinner. You're actually a saint now. You're a different breed in that sense. You're now a heavenly, eternal, perfect before the eyes of God saint. You're not just a fixed up old sinner. So you're supposed to act like a saint, not like a fixed up sinner. We have to understand, in spite of the conflict that we still have with sin, we're no longer under the tyranny of that sin nature anymore. You actually can have victory over it. And, and so in that sense, you must know your identity. Throughout Scripture, Hosea chapter 4, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, Philippians chapter 4, first, uh, Colossians chapter 3, all paint these pictures uh, of, it said, Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, finally, brethren, whatever is true, amen, whatever is honorable or noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, you, you know what that doesn't include? All sinful behavior, all things that are against the character and nature of God. He says, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things. You get the picture? You see, to have victory over the old man, you have to take active uh, leadership in, in aligning your will with God's will and knowing what he says and know who you are as a believer. So that you go, you know what? I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be angry. I'm no longer going to look at those things and go, you know, well, it's just, you know, just a little thing. I want even the little things to be okay with God. A second thing, a second step, if you will, it's, it's called reckoning or considering. It, again, it's an accounting term. We've looked at it previously. It's logizomai in the Greek. And, and the reason it's so important is you have to count it. And, and what it does is it, it not is just your mind, but it's your heart. It's how you remember that thing and where it sinks in into your being you're to reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. It's logizoma. You're to count it. You're to put it in the right compartment in your life. But alive to God in Christ Jesus, and therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Now notice the action verbs here. You don't let it. You don't let it reign in your body anymore. Notice where it resides. Not in your spirit. 
Your spirit, because it's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, is incapable of being anything other than the Spirit of God transforming you. But your body and your mind, which is part of your body, are still susceptible to sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors. And it says you have to take an active reckoning in your heart and know that you have the capacity to sin and then do something about it. It's called knowing things and then believing what you know and then honoring the fact that you know them by making it something that's within your heart. It's to reckon it. It's to count it. It's to put it in the right column. We have to honestly look at our lives and the situations that we're in, and and we have to realize that sin's contamination is still very much with us. I have to know that in my heart. Otherwise, I'll walk around blindly. When you know, if you're here and you're married, there are times in your marriage when you optically and you practically and in the manner of living, you may not experience your spouse's love. There may be something going on in your marriage. Maybe you had some kind of a, an argument. Maybe there was something that happened, and you took opposite sides in it. In a practical sense, there may be something between the two of you to where the actions undertaken would say, she or he does not love me. But you know what happens? In your heart, you, you absolutely still know that your spouse loves you. So your heart overrides the situation, and now you draw back to what you know in your heart to transform the way you think about it. You see, your heart very much has control over the way you process information. You have to reckon it correctly. Not just have the facts correct, but you need to count it the way it needs to be counted. I know my wife loves me. And no amount of weirdnesses or things that come are are going to keep me from knowing that because my knowing is not just my head, it's also my heart. So your default position, your heart position, then affects the way you process things. And no matter how radical your outer transformation may have been at the time of salvation, it's, it's still difficult at times to comprehend that struggle. And there are a number of reasons why we struggle. And so let's look at them. Why, why do we struggle to reckon? Why do we struggle with our heart? Why do we struggle? Because I'm assuming that most of you have had a heart struggle with your relationship with the Lord. Amen? Is that true? It's true for me. I have struggled. I struggle a whole lot less than I used to. But there are times when you struggle. It's like, Lord, I, you know, I, I've struggled with this, this issue. And it's like, you, are you sure you love me? Are you sure? And you struggle in your heart and you struggle in your mind. What are some of those things? What happens? Let me give you a few reasons. I think one of the reasons is because the tyranny of sin is still there and Satan does not want you to believe that you have been freed from it. So he's back there with the seven-layer cheeseburger. It's like, no. If God loved you, you'd just eat that and enjoy it. You know, oh, yeah, well, your marriage is too far gone anyway, so you just go ahead and leave. 
You see, see, Satan does not want you to believe the truth about God. And so he fills your mind with all kinds of thoughts that are contrary to your new nature. And sometimes you cave into those thoughts, and you entertain those thoughts, and you mull those thoughts over. So one of the reasons we struggle is we give Satan access to our minds. Now, sometimes that's unintentional, and sometimes that's very intentional. Be careful. The unintentional ones come to you maybe in dreams. Anybody ever woken up and you've had some kind of crazy dream that's straight out of the pit of hell? You're like, I don't know where that came from. You're like, you're like praying for the next hour and a half just to get rid of whatever it was that came into your head? That's because your mind is a meat computer, okay? It's made out of the stuff of this earth, and the enemy can still get in there. He does so not personally himself, but he has legions of demons that are able to feed those little tidbits of information to you. So be careful. The enemy doesn't want you to believe God. A second reason is because these things aren't physically observable. It's if you do A, B will happen. We like things that way, right? You know, it's like all the, the things that you can do for weight loss. Isn't it crazy if you just buy these things, take five of these pills, do this, and all of a sudden you're going to be, you know, totally cut, fat. You'll be like, you'll, you're not even going to look like you anymore. You see, we like instantaneous results that have very specific steps to where if you do this and this and this, that this will happen. That's what we like. But you know what? Your walk with the Lord's not like that. It's different for every last one of us in this room. And what you go through, I may not go through. What I go through, you may not go through. All of us cumulative may have a few things that are the same. We may have hundreds of different things. And the way God handles them in their proportion may be different in your life than in mine or ours collectively. But the fact of the matter is it's not observable. You can't go, okay, well, I need to just do this. I can't just check a box. You have to be actively engaged in constantly assessing your spiritual well-being. You must be actively engaged in constantly assessing your spiritual well-being. Test and see, Scripture says, whether there be any wicked way in you. That means examine it. It means look at it. You know what? That needs to go. That thing right there. You may not see it one day. You may see it the next. Deal with it when it comes. A third thing, and perhaps the most common reason, while you're still on this earth, you actually do things that contradict God's truth, don't you? You actually stumble every once in a while. You bruise a toe. You say things that you live long enough to regret and hate. And so when you do those things and you don't repent of them, why do you think it's so important for the believer who's already saved to still confess your sins that he might forgive you and cleanse you? Because if you don't get that daily forgiveness and that daily cleansing, those things pile up. And pretty soon the body of evidence says you're not saved. So you don't want to walk in sin. You, you have to believe it. And in order to do that, you have to count it. You've got to affirm it. These are truths of faith, and they have to be affirmed in faith. It's a faith promise. You have to act on it as if you know it's true. And continue to act on it. 
take decisive steps. Until you believe that truth, accept that truth, that 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 power that sin has has been broken, you'll never live victoriously. If you don't walk in the knowledge of the truth that sin's power has been broken in your life, then you will not walk victoriously. If you entertain the enemy and you let him into your head, it's going to take you a long time to see much victory in your life. Because you just walk, I don't know. It's exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to walk around and go, I don't know. Now you've got to know, you've got to count it, and you've got to walk in faith. There's a story happened years ago in the middle of the Latin, Latin American Revolution. We were fighting a war uh, chiefly with Mexico, but there was an American citizen who was captured on the border of what is now Texas and, and Mexico and sentenced to death. An American officer rushed in before the firing squad just before he was going to be put to death, and he draped a flag over him, completely covering him. And he says, you, you can't do this. If you shoot through shoot this man, you're going to have to shoot through the flag. And if you shoot through the flag, you'll incur the wrath of the entire country. You see, in order for Satan to get to you, it's got to go through Jesus. In order for the enemy to get to you, you've been cloaked with Christ's righteousness. You are literally covered in him in that sense. So the only way anything can get to you is if you lift up the cloak. You open yourself up to it. You yield yourself or you present yourself as a target. The third thing, presenting. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, verse 12, that you should obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body. You notice these are both your body. This is where this happens. Your body is also your mind. It's part of the physical body. You think with your mind. Your heart is non-material. It's, it's part of what you are that is not the material of this world. So your heart, in that sense, your emotions, those things are non-material. But your thoughts are material. So those things that you allow into your mind, those things that you allow to touch your body, those things that you do that are part of this mortal world that you live in, you have to be careful how you present those things. You do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, that your members as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be the master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. And so this third step is to present yourself. Say, look, this is what I got. This body that I have, this mind that God gave me, is the only one I get while I'm here. And what I do with it matters. And that is fully on me. That's why when Christians say they can do whatever they want, I always take them to this passage. You know, you can't. Not unless you want the result of doing what you want. Because if you want to do what you want, you're going to get the result of doing what you want. You're going to let sin reign in your mortal body. And you're going to bear the consequences of letting sin reign in your mortal body. Ask someone who's been in illicit sexual relationships. Ask someone who's addicted to drugs. Ask someone who's an alcoholic. Ask someone whose life is filled with hatred whether the sin reigning in their mortal body has had a, has had a cost that they've had to pay. Probably many of us can say, well, those four things would probably encompass a vast majority of us in here at some point in time during our life. 
And so he says, look, you, you have to present your body properly. You have to present yourself to God, all of you. And notice it's your mind and your body, your thoughts, and your physical being. You've got to give those to God. This admonition to us is to not let sin reign. Notice what it says. It's on you to not let sin reign. It's on me to not let sin reign. It's not that Christ is insufficient in giving us enough power to have that happen. We simply choose not to do it. That's what happens when believers sin. We take our bodies that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We take our minds that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We even use that place that the Spirit resides. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit now. The Holy Spirit travels around in you. And where you present it is up to you. Have you ever thought about yourself going someplace you shouldn't go as you're presenting the Holy Spirit in that bar? You're taking the Holy Spirit into that illicit sexual relationship? You're you're taking the Holy Spirit into that drug-induced craze? You're actually asking Jesus to come along for the ride while you're beating the tar out of that person? You understand what I'm saying? That's on you. That's on me. Where I present my body and what I do to present my mind. That's us. That's our responsibility as as the believers that we claim to be. You see, it's no longer the master. The sin is no longer the Lord. It can, and that sin must be resisted. That's why James put it this way, resist the devil and he will flee. You see, our problem is in the resisting. It's not that we don't have the power to resist, it's that we choose not to resist. And now having said that, there are things that are harder to resist than others. If you've got a problem with drugs, you've got a problem with alcohol, you've got some things that you've been doing for a long period of time and the world calls them addictions. From God's perspective, he is more than able and you are more than conquerors. The question is, will you resist? Will you resist? You're looking at a man who used to finish every day by consuming an entire bottle of hard liquor who put that bottle down and has never taken a drink since. Not because I went through a program, because the power of Christ dwells in me. Amen? So he's able. He can do it. Now, at times, has there been some resistance necessary? Oh, yes. Especially initially, because his old friends are still there. Those old business partners are still there. Those old people you used to hang with, still there. That same bar, still there. Same road that that same bar has been, it's still there. The question is, are you going to resist turning into the parking lot? Are you going to resist keeping friends with those people that you know do that on a regular basis? You see, you have to present yourself. If you want victory, you must present yourself to God, so that sin will no longer reign in your body any longer. 
It's on you. You have the power. You see, the only remaining beachhead. You know, the reason that we were successful on D-Day in World War II is the Germans believed that there was no way in the world that we could attack the Germans at Normandy. They had limited gun emplacements. Those gun emplacements were actually not aimed at the beach. They were aimed out in the English Channel. And because they believed that that beachhead was impenetrable, they had very little forces to defend it. The enemy is every bit that smart, knows exactly what beachhead is left in your life that can be attacked. And let me tell you where that beachhead is. It's in your mortal body and your mind. Those are the two places, chiefly, that the enemy can still attack you. He cannot attack your spirit. Your spirit has been redeemed by the living God. In that sense, your spirit is now in God's hands. But your mind, oh yeah, it can be attacked. It's still an open beachhead. Your body still can be attacked. You have those appetites, amen? That burger looked amazing. I'm like, yes, no. Then I saw the picture, El Diablo. That's because your flesh is weak, family of God. Subject to corruption, subject to death. Your body's going to one day give out. Your earthly tent, Paul said, is perishing. Amen? That's a fact. One of the reasons we stand in front of the mirror for like an hour and a half going, I can make this better, I can make this better. (laughs) No, you can't. From the dust of the earth it came, and it's going back one day. (laughs) That's the only remaining beachhead. It still has sinful lust. It likes to be liked. So much so that it will do nearly anything to be liked. It wants to get its own way. Anybody in here ever fought with selfishness? I haven't mentioned that one yet. Most of us do. I like to please me. And I don't like it when other people don't please me. Maybe you guys don't think that. I do. I'm, being, I'm trying to give you a sense of exactly how vulnerable you, re, you really are. Amen? I really am. I like being liked. I don't like being disliked. So when things come that might make people dislike me, maybe I'll just avoid that. And I don't want you to raise a hand. How many of you have ever told a lie because you wanted to be liked? Don't raise your hands, please. Because probably every hand in here would go up. How many of you have ever told a lie because you want people to like you? If you're a man, it's all of us. It's called dating. Yeah, I got a great job. I got an awesome car. Own two houses, got a huge bank account. You're living in the car. It's your mama's bank account. (laughs) Full on liar. Flesh is weak. We like to be liked. You got to fight that. 
You can't cave in. That's why later when we get to chapter 7 next, Paul will actually say this, for I know that in me, the great apostle Paul, dwells no good thing. That is in my flesh is what he says. The last remaining beachhead, the flesh, the mind that's made out of flesh, it's really susceptible. Flesh is weak. So how do we really live? Here it is. Three things. Very, very, very simple. And bring the worship team back out. How do we really live? You have to know who you are by studying God's word. That's how you know. You keep studying God's word and you will know who you are in Christ Jesus. That's one of the chief functions it has in our life. A second thing, consider, reckon. Do a completely faithful, accurate, honest accounting of what you are. Not just know who you are, but know what you are in Christ Jesus. Man, you're alive in Christ and dead to sin. Do you reckon that tonight? Do you actually count in your heart of hearts that you are dead to sin and you're alive to Christ? You consider it. You think about it. You see, because that last remaining beachhead, it's still alive. It's still open. But you can fortify against the enemy's attacks there. You ever thought of that? You can build up a wall. The enemy can never... You know God's word and you fortify your life with prayer. You you seek the, the love of the Lord in your life. Uh, and you make that beachhead, he, there's no place for him to go. And then finally, you have to yield to who and what he is so that you can have victory over the world and your flesh and the devil. So know who you are. Consider what you are and know who and what he is. And you're going to do just fine. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? I'm going to invite some of the pastors to come forward. Uh, Message like this, and notice I wasn't preaching at you. I was talking with you. That's why I used myself as an example. Because we can all use a tune-up and making sure that we're doing our part to know how we should really live. So the question is, are, are you going to really know who you are? The, the question is, you're going to know what you are. Or the question is, do you know who and what Christ is who's in you? If you know those things, you're, you're good. And you're going to get better all the way through your existence while you're here on this earth. But if you don't know those things, and more importantly, if you don't know Christ then what I just said is impossible for you. You'll, you. You won't know victory over sin. You're going to cave into sin. You're, gonna, you're not going to know who he is. You're not going to know who you are. And you're, you're surely not going to have the knowledge of the word that you need. And so I want to make available to you tonight, and we're going to close in song in just a minute, 
But before we do, we're going to pray. And if you're here tonight, you do not know Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, that I'm going to invite you to come forward. And we want to pray with you that you receive Christ tonight. Because that's the first step. That's the one essential step you have to make. And when you make that step, then the rest of the steps come into view. But if you don't make that step, then you're on your own. And the enemy will have you exactly where he wants you. And you'll experience ups and downs. And in the end, your life will be exactly as the enemy wants it. It will end in death, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And you'll spend eternity separated from God. With him, the exact opposite is true. You can experience eternal life even today, kingdom life now, and a glorious heavenly life when you step out of time and into eternity. So if you need Christ tonight, do not leave this room without coming and praying to receive him tonight. It's simple. Invite him into your life. Offer him yours in exchange. Tell him you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Ask him to come in. Because if you ask, he will. And then tell him you want to walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the work of your Spirit in our lives. And we pray that tonight as we've been encouraged and strengthened and challenged, we've been admonished and exhorted, Lord, we want to know who you are. We want to know what you are. We want to know who we are, and we want to know what we are, and we want to experience all that you have for us. And so I want to pray tonight, Father, if there's anyone here. The invitation's been given. The question is, will someone come and receive that free gift of eternal life? The challenge has been given to us as believers. Will someone come and be prayed for to be set free from the bondage of sin? Lord, they've caved in to the, the mortal flesh. And so we pray tonight as we end this service that you would be honored as we offer our lives to you as living sacrifices, that you would be honored with the way we live. Lord, change us, mold us, shape us, draw the lost under repentance tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship.